Kia ora, I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. Today on The Detail... Now, I had no idea. Uh, Shin Bet had no idea. Mossad had no idea. Uh, CIA had no idea. We were all caught by surprise. The surprise massive attack by Hamas on Israel by land, sea and air nearly two weeks ago. As I'm speaking to you, there are seven different locations that they are trying to infiltrate into Israel. Their desire to come in here and to continue doing this, it's like a kamikaze. Israel counterattacked with airstrikes. The Israelis say they'll do whatever it takes to destroy the militants of Hamas. And on the streets of Gaza, whatever it takes sounds like this. And the war goes on. Thousands are dead, hundreds of thousands are homeless, countless are missing and injured. Witnesses say militants fired at them as they tried to run away, while rockets were flying overhead. They bombed without warning, says this resident. This is murder. It's huge. Everyone has to do something. The children that are brought in are brought in with crush injuries from collapsed buildings or shrapnel or debris. Israel is massing troops at the border. One of its biggest mobilizations ever. The army says it is readying itself for a ground invasion of Gaza, but there are no decisions about when. So when is it time to talk about peace? Stephen Hoadley is Auckland University Associate Professor of Politics and International Relations. We'll talk about what it would take to get a ceasefire, where peace deals have worked in the past, and how the media has covered this conflict. But let's look at latest developments and Israel's planned ground attack on Hamas. Advanced teams of commandos have already gone in looking for hostages, looking for Hamas targets. I expect, um, and this is other international commentators have said the same thing, they will section off northern Gaza into neighborhoods and then try to clear each neighborhood one by one of any Hamas operatives, uh, ammunition depots, uh, communication centers and other Hamas Uh, things of military use in each of those sectors. Because Netanyahu has has made it clear that the aim is to demolish Hamas. But why would Hamas stay if they know that this attack is imminent? One analyst uh, from Great Britain, a a well-respected professor, Michael Clark, has put forward a scenario whereby Hamas would use the tunnels and use the evacuation of citizens to disguise themselves as ordinary Palestinians, move south into South Gaza, and then come back with the returning civilians in the next weeks or months and reconstitute itself. Mm. This is just one scenario. It's speculation. We have to be very cautious about that. More than 600,000 Gazans are reported to be on the move to the southern part of the territory. Aid agencies are calling this humanitarian collapse. It is certainly a disaster. It is certainly enormous hardship. Uh, The great majority of them will survive. They will be given food and water somewhere by the international agencies if not by the Israeli government itself or the Egyptian government, when the Rafah gate crossing is opened. The the relief trucks are there. They're lined up, ready to go in. The United States has put its weight against um, Egypt to open up the crossing, to allow the Gazans out, to allow the humanitarian uh, aid in. 
uh, and, and when that happens, then uh, there will be relief to those many people on the move. In the meantime, yes, it is a disaster, but it isn't a massacre. It isn't a genocide. It isn't a, an attempt by the Israeli government in any way, shape, or form to uh, wantonly kill Palestinian people. The aim is the Hamas leadership, the operatives, the gunmen, those who plan the weapons caches, who communicate, who, who um, put forward the propaganda, um, and otherwise support the Hamas organization. There's been an international warning that uh, that Israel, with this kind of response, is breaching humanitarian law. Yeah, I'm, look, I've got the statute of the International Criminal Court in front of me right now, on Article 8 under War Crimes. If you read those clauses alone, it is quite clear that these are war crimes by Israel. But if you read the statute very carefully, each of them contains a clause that says unjustified by military necessity, not military objectives. The Israeli government will simply say, we are not attacking the infrastructure, the necessities of life, or the, the persons of the Palestinians. We are attacking military objects. I've got a list uh, in front of me of, say, uh, two dozen governments that have counseled Israel to exercise proportionality and moderation, meaning don't bomb civilians. Other governments are much more supportive of Israel and say, look, Israel has suffered a grievous attack, a, a, a bestial attack, a, a horrendous attack, and therefore uh, temporarily it is justified in cutting off the power in moving people around as a temporary necessity to achieve the military, the specific military aim of isolating Hamas and destroying it as a terrorist organization. That debate will continue. Is there anything going on geopolitically? You know, why now? Is it because it was the holiday or or was there something was there something else in particular that was behind that day of the attack? The narrative by the Hamas people is that Israel desecrated the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Uh, abuses uh, Palestinian prisoners and and generally occupies uh, Palestinian land. But those are grievances that have been going on for 50 years. So there's that doesn't really trigger a specific event. My take is that the uh, Israeli government and the Saudi government have been talking about normalizing relations, as has already taken place with UAE, with Morocco, uh, with Bahrain, and a number of other Arab countries. And the Palestinians have been forgotten. They feel that the uh, the governments of the Middle East are pursuing their own geopolitical and economic interests, and the Palestinian cause. Uh, five million Palestinians um, divided between Gaza and the West Bank. Their cause has simply been uh, put uh, far down the agenda and that uh, they needed to do something to reestablish their credibility, to their visibility on the world stage. Now, remember that the average Palestinian person like you and me is, is a family person trying to, uh, to, to raise their kids, trying to make a living to get by. 
And we're talking about uh, uh, 30 to 50,000 uh, operatives who are Hamas and Fatah leaders, and their livelihood is tied up in conflict. That is, they get their pay, their status, their weapons, their, um, their office, their authority, because they are leading the fight against Israel. They're not there because they're elected, because neither of those two Palestinian entities has had an election for over 10 years. They're not there because they're popular. They're not there because they're providing good services to the average Palestinian. They're there because they're leading the fight to destroy Israel. And consequently, uh, if, if the attention is taken off this fight, and if Israel is making friends with the, the, the former allies of the Palestinians, that is the Arab governments that on four occasions have attacked Israel on behalf of the Palestinians and their own interests, then the Palestinian leadership is feeling very nervous that their days as leaders are numbered. But uh, as people have pointed out, this uh, operation took many months to plan, to assemble the weapons, to uh, check uh, where the exit points could be, to rally the gunmen. If they had planned longer, the secret might have gotten out. That is, uh, uh, the Israeli intelligence services may have, they have informants in the Gaza area, and they should have picked up rumors that some major uh, initiative was afoot but they didn't. And Stephen, how long do you see this war going on for, these brutal attacks and counterattacks? Yeah, the war will continue, there's no doubt about it. It has continued now uh, since the, the Palestine Liberation Organization was formed some 40, 50 years ago. Uh, the attacks uh, and the counterattacks have uh, gone on sporadically uh, since that time, uh, largely small scale, but occasional something like the current flare-up, which is uh, a sort of mega flare-up, but it will uh, resolve itself in due course as the parties, particularly the, the Palestinians, run out of ammunition, hide from the overwhelming Israeli force, and will regroup and may certainly plan a further initiative down the track. The prospects of a lasting peace between the two, the Israelis and the Palestinians, is very remote. So a very remote chance of lasting peace. It wasn't always like this, though. A few years ago, the Israeli government was looking at a two-state solution, backed by the US, backed by New Zealand. But the Palestinians rejected that, then Israeli elections brought in what Stephen calls a radically right-wing government with some very militant uh, Zionists in it. And they have all said there is no two-state solution. There is no prospect of the Palestinians getting their own state. Their long-term solution uh, is uh, continued imprisonment of the Palestinians, accelerating the current policies, using military force to suppress the Palestinian movement, and it'll harden them in their leadership positions. So the best we can hope for is that Israel will exercise restraint. The Hamas leadership will also exercise restraint. The immediate fighting will stop. Uh, the victims will be buried or patched up as best they can. Water is running out. Our own supplies are running out, and we are not able to get 
any humanitarian assistance into the Gaza Strip. It's a pretty dire situation. The international community will resume its aid to the Palestinians because of this heinous, murderous uh, attack, which has shocked, I think, even the most uh, ardent uh, pro-Palestinian supporter. And the status quo ante will reaffirm itself, that is, an uneasy peace with occasional flare-ups between the two sides. I think this is the pattern that we foresee. Is there any kind of peace talk going on right now behind the scenes? No peace talks that I'm aware of, but in Doha, representatives of Israel and the Hamas are discussing uh, the possibility of a prisoner exchange. Israel says there will be no supplies until its hostages are freed. Now, this is much to be desired from Israel's point of view. A hundred Israelis, including a few with American citizenship, which which brings the U.S. um, into the picture are in uh, Palestinian hands, in particularly in, in the Hamas hands. And Israel has thousands of Palestinian prisoners that have been convicted of various kinds of terrorist, murder, arson, um, assault uh, charges uh, in over the years in Israel. So a prisoner exchange, uh, I think, would be a better solution than a ground invasion by Israel into uh, that very troubled urban terrain of, of Gaza. So the quicker that can happen, that will then lower the temperature and then perhaps some sort of ceasefire uh, uh, talk can begin. But the uh, the Hamas people have said, look, we're not going to talk prisoner exchange seriously until the bombardment stops. Israel could kill them with their airstrikes because they could kill them with the guards that they are with. That's the That's the biggest risk today. And by the way, by the way, let let me explain that. By the way, there is a very short way now of solving the problem. Hamas has declared that they are ready to exchange all civilian prisoners now, immediately, in exchange of Palestinian women prisoners in Israeli jails. If Israel accepts, that exchange can take place now, immediately. So the the prisoner exchange uh, is, is a hostage yeah, there's a double meaning there, of course, that the prisoner exchange is a hostage to the military uh, objective of the very right-wing and militant uh, Israeli cabinet. And when or if we get to the point of, a, of ceasefire talks, who would be involved there in terms of who would be the main players? Well, that's a very good question, because if you're looking at it from Jerusalem's point of view, you've got the government in Ramallah of the Palestinian Authority, led by Mahmoud Abbas, uh, who is older even than Biden and Trump, uh, if if you want to be, be concerned about uh, younger dynamic leadership. Well, the Palestinians do not have young dynamic leadership. And Hamas on the other side is led uh, by a guy who's designated as a terrorist by the United States, by the European countries, by New Zealand. And so the the Israelis would say, look, which really represents the Palestinian people? I mean, we're all sympathetic to the Palestinian people. Israelis are sympathetic uh, to the Palestinian people. And there are lots of people-to-people links uh, between Israelis uh, at the social level, at the charitable level, at the religious level, uh, with their uh, Palestinian counterparts. 
but it's at the government-to-government level that the problems begin. So in that respect, we're waiting for the Palestinians to, to put forward a negotiating team, if they wish to do so, which they have refused to do so, so far. They say Israel should simply withdraw from all of the occupied areas. In fact, Israel should simply self-destruct. That's the kind of stalemate that the, the two sides are facing at the moment. So in the past, when there have been peace talks over the Middle East, various you know, outside parties have been involved. It feels like we're just not at that point yet. We're at the 30th uh, anniversary of the Oslo Accords. Now, Jimmy Carter, the president... Of, uh, of of the United States brokered an agreement between the Israelis and uh, Yasser Arafat of the PLO, the, the predecessor of the current authority, and 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 fostered the uh, the creation of the Palestinian Authority and the turning over of authority over all kinds of areas like education and 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 public order to the Palestinians in the West Bank area. Uh, so there is a precedent for cooperation and for um, for devolution of power to the Palestinians that might have led to a Palestinian state had the Palestinians continued on the track that was laid out by the Oslo Accords. That that precedent may may come back into focus, uh, but again, it requires leaders in uh, the Palestinian area and leaders in uh, the amongst the Israeli cabinet to find common ground to uh, negotiate mutually beneficial compromises, and both sides will have to compromise greatly. At the moment, none of those elements appears to be present, so the matter is being decided on the battlefield. Are there other examples that they might be looking at at some point where peace was negotiated? Say say Ireland. Can that be sort of held up as, well, it happened here and this is how it happened? Can it be applied in, to this war? Yes, Ireland is a good example, and also former Yugoslavia is a good example. These are examples of ethnic, uh, religious ethnic conflict having to do with nationalistic passions. And in the Northern Ireland conflict, the analysts that I've read indicate that everybody simply got tired. That is, the conflict went on and on and on. And so weariness is a factor in the resolution of conflicts. Now, in the Bosnian conflict, it was the imposition of air power by the United States, uh, the NATO powers, uh, and others. Uh, and there is a temper and, and separation of the different states of the former Yugoslavia into their ethnic components. But as we've seen in the news, uh, the Serbs are still pushing forward against the Kosovars. Uh, and that uh, it, 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 while there's a temporary peace, a temporary ceasefire, uh, there is no permanent peace. Northern Ireland is uh, embedded in a, a very civil, law-abiding society, as, aside from what the IRA did and the provisionals did, is embedded in Great Britain uh, with a well-developed bureaucracy, with non-corrupt police, with a, a dense set of laws, uh, criminal as well as civil laws, and a population that uh, is uh, moderately religious and therefore uh, you know, concerned with charity and tolerance to that extent. And they're not poor. They're not particularly poor uh, by world standards. 
So the, the advantages that Northern Ireland had that uh, that are uh, lacking, say, in former Yugoslavia or other parts of the world, are admirable. And the way that the Good Friday Agreement took place and the, the continuing peace that looks like it's going to last in Northern Ireland is uh, is an example to the world. But it is an example that does require a lot of preconditions that simply are not present in, in Africa, in South Asia, Middle East and, and other areas of conflict. Shall we look at the media coverage? Because you've just put out a piece called Narratives and Biases in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. What do you make of, and we're talking about media coverage, it's, it's changed is what you're saying, aren't you? The sympathies have swung towards Palestine in this. Yeah, over the last 20 or 30 years, uh, New Zealand was firmly behind Israel, and, and many New Zealanders still are. I'm not, I'm not talking about the Jewish community. I'm talking about the average New Zealander. Uh, but in the last 20 or 30 years, as Israel has become stronger, and some would say more militant, less tolerant of the Palestinians, and the Palestinians' leadership has become less tolerant of Israeli leadership that is mutual, and that internationally, the uh, BDS movement, uh, boycott, uh, disvestment, and sanction movement has grown in popularity amongst ordinary people, not, not Palestinians, but ordinary uh, Sydney siders, for example, or people people in London, people in, in, in Berlin, people in the United States, sympathizing with the Palestinians because there's a there's a bias. And, and I don't want to bag the media here. I think the media do try sincerely to cover stories in as unbiased a way as they can. So I'm going to give them uh, all credit, but I'm going to say there's a, a subtle unconscious bias that takes place because of the asymmetry of the nature of the conflict going on right now. Let's take an example uh, of the uh, New Zealand Herald coverage in the 12th of October. On uh, the international pages, there's a huge picture of, of demolished buildings, and there's a tiny little picture of a grandmother being taken away by Hamas gunmen. Uh, there's a very big article about the Palestinians' uh, injuries and the and destruction of buildings. And there's a very tiny article um, indicating that, yes, over a thousand Israelis were murdered point blank, shot point blank by Hamas uh, gunmen. In the visual media, the TV media, who could not be attracted by the sight of buildings blowing up and collapsing, of victims in the street clawing through the wreckage. Only God will help us, said this woman. A mother of two, she had lost the family home and everything in it. Of dead people being rushed to hospital. This 10-year-old girl was hit by shrapnel from a blast. Her brother lies under a tent on the hospital forecourt. Al Shifa ran out of beds days ago. Uh, funerals with AK-47s being fired in the air, death to Israel being chanted. This is irresistible to the electronic media. And it creates a bias in the average person who might be unbiased, 
and not really anti-Semitic at all, and know very little about the conflict, a bias in favor of the Palestinians, a feeling that the Israelis are bullies, are using military means, are indiscriminate, who hate the Palestinians, and the Palestinians are the uh, the poor underdogs uh, in this particular conflict, which which is partly true, which is partly true, but it does create an uh, a, a feeling that uh, because the Israelis bury their dead, you know, very discreetly, they they don't uh, allow media. Uh, pictures of dead or injured people because of, of dignity and privacy concerns. Uh, and these are not characteristic of the way in which the Palestinians treat their dead and injured. So the, the, the way in which the media, simply by reporting the story, they are in fact reporting the Palestinian narrative rather than the Israeli narrative. The Israeli narrative is boring. It's orderly. Uh, it, it, is, uh, it, it is first world narrative. Uh, it's a suburban narrative. The Palestinian narrative is full of drama, blood, excitement, destruction, explosions, uh, 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 conflict, uh, shouting, um, uh, 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 impassioned people. Uh, and, and this, in contrast to, say, the, the orderly way in which the uh, Israeli Defense Force deploys and, and, the, uh, and the Israeli cabinet sits around and discusses what to do. That's not, not very attractive to the media. That's it for today. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. The detail is supported by the Public Interest Journalism Fund. This episode was engineered by William Saunders. Our producers are Alexia Russell and Bonnie Harrison. And thanks to Stephen Hoadley. Kakite. Ka